You're listening to Office Hours, a series of curious conversations with Belfer Center experts. I spoke with Zachary Kaufman, who's done a lot of work on human rights policy all over the world. He is currently a senior fellow at the Carr Center at the Kennedy School and was previously a postdoctoral research fellow with the International Security Program at the Belfer Center. I've got a question for you. Is democracy always a good thing? Well, uh, I think aspirationally democracy, um, with the caveat of protection of minority rights, um, as we have in, um, in our constitution and it's, it's in, as other countries also have, um, yes, is, is the, the sort of most ideal form of, um, of governance. Um, but a pure tyranny of the majority uh, clearly is not. You ever been in a situation um, where you're just like, oh man, democracy not helping me out right now? <laughs> well, uh, there might have been one time. Um, I was, uh, I was traveling. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous uh, incident. I was, um, I was flying. Uh, I, was, I was on a work trip in, in East Africa. And I was taking a flight between two cities. And um, I paid to go to, to point B, let's call it, uh, from point A. And um, I, I fell asleep. I was taking a nap after I got on the flight. And I woke up. And it was supposed to be an overland flight. And okay. I find that I'm flying over water. So I sort of flagged down the, the, the steward and asked, um, you know, where, where are we going? Because um, we're not supposed to be flying over water. And, uh, and the person said, um, well, we decided to go to this other city, point C, instead. Mid-flight. Yeah, mid, mid-flight. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, I, you know, I needed to actually go where I, you know, uh, intended to go. And, and, and so the steward said, you know, okay, let me, let me go talk to the pilot. And so, as if came, this was like they were like surprised that you yeah, wanted to go to the yeah. original city, okay. because you know the other place is known as sort of a, a, a very desirable place to, to go. Okay, and so comes back and says, you know, um, uh, there's there's typically a difference in in the cost for going to these two different cities. I'm not going to charge you the difference. And people, looking out for you. I know it was, it was really generous, and okay. I and I stated so, <laughs> and uh, and so I said, well. Um, you know, I actually do actually kind of need to go to this, this first yeah. place. Um, can, you, can you talk to the pilots here to sort of see what's going on? And so the steward came back and said, um, you're American? And I said, yeah. Um, and, and the person said, well, um, you like democracy. I was like, you're really just kind of bewildered, but also, you know, pretty nervous about where this might be going. Yeah. Um, said, yeah, I, I guess so. And said, well, okay. Uh, the person said, um, we'll put this to a vote. And you on give the a plane. speech on the plane. On the flight. Uh, you can get up mid-flight. over water right now. Yes, over water. Um, you, can, you can get up and give a speech, and um, we'll take a vote. And if more people want to go to the original destination, we'll turn around. Yeah. Um, but if not, we're, we're heading to, to this other place. And so I gave a speech. You know, I explained that I uh, you know, had paid for this ticket. I actually needed to show up. Um, and I just lost Terribly. Really? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. I was the like only you're not person that skilled of an orator. To, you weren't no, able to. Apparently not. Wow. Apparently not. Okay. Not, not persuasive. <laughs> and, um, uh, and so we, we you know, landed. Uh, everybody like, got off. Yeah. And the most that the pilot would do is to return me to the mainland and just kind of plop me down in this place that was completely unfamiliar to me. I was wearing a suit, had all my luggage. And I had a hitchhike uh, many hours, um, mostly sitting next to a, a, a goat. Uh, wow. um, back to my original. Goat was driving. Destin- the goat, goat picked you up. No, no, no. It was 
It was one of the uh, the other unfortunate passengers, uh, wow. but a cute, very cute nice passenger. Go. Yeah, very cute. How, yeah. You didn't so, even know so where democracy you, failed me. Democracy um, didn't. Although I guess I should point out that democracy prevailed for those who were in the majority, of course. Although so from their perspective, maybe it actually was minority a good rights thing. were not protected. I know here. they weren't. They, my minority rights were not right? were not protected. And presumably there would have been other people on the flight who wanted to go to the first destination. But uh, did they just change? I don't know. They didn't, they didn't vote in my... I was literally the only one who voted for this. No, so there were any abstaining. They might I, have been there, there might have been abstentions. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. So let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. You just wrote a book this year. Um, and I've got it right here. Um, right here. It's called United States Law and Policy on Transitional Justice, Principles, Politics, in pragmatics. Okay. I'm confused. <laughs> what? I don't think I understand what transitional justice is. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, why does justice need transitioning? Isn't that, isn't that like saying transitional loyalty or mm -hmm. like transitional morality? You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just in transition. Right. Well, so uh, I would define transitional justice as the process and objectives um, of societies uh, facing either ongoing or past atrocities and other serious human rights violations through judicial or non-judicial mechanisms. And so let me unpack that uh, okay. for you for a moment. There are both normative and descriptive aspects of transitional justice. The descriptive aspects are what are all the options that um, a society or a state might uh, support or implement um, in order to affect transitional justice. And yeah. I identify seven general ones for dealing with perpetrators. So these are just perpetrators, not victims or survivors um, or others. Sorry, slow down. So, so we're talking, so uh, society has just experienced some mass atrocity. Or is undergoing it at the time. At the time. And transitional justice is trying to bring the perpetrators to justice. Although I would idea? argue that, um, that it's a misnomer because justice is not always the only or even primary or exclusive objective in the process of transitional justice, okay, ironically. This doesn't seem fair. Then. And so um, transitional justice also includes other objectives like yeah. healing yes. and forgiveness okay. and reconciliation okay. and truth-seeking. And so there is a perception that sometimes those um, should be prioritized higher, those objectives should be prioritized higher than justice. Um, or that sometimes they might be intention. And, um, and for example, there's, there's often a perceived, though not necessarily actual tension, between peace and justice. For example, in a situation where um, the suspected atrocity perpetrator might say, look, I will um, cease committing crimes um, if you promise not to prosecute me. Um, so if the um, objective is to um, you know, uh, promote peace in that yeah. case, um, and you happen to believe the person yeah. that they'll actually cease their um, the crimes that they're committing or allegedly committing, yeah. um, then you might say that you might think of this as a tense situation. Right. And so maybe you think that the uh, that the objective of short term peace yeah. um, is more important in okay. that case. So so sometimes. Uh, it's better for peace not to bring people to justice uh, if somebody says, I won't, I won't continue committing these atrocities. Well, so what I, would, what I would respond in that case is, first of all, um, uh, you have to ask yourself, do you necessarily believe right. that the person is actually going to be committed to peace? Right. Number two, um, that actually only speaks to the immediate 
conflict. Um, so there are, other, there are other concerns at stake too, right, which are um, general deterrence um, and general accountability. So um, what are you saying um, if you were to offer that person an amnesty? Okay. You're basically saying perhaps that if your crimes are egregious enough, I will um, give you an amnesty. I will not hold you accountable, ironically, given um, if your crimes are as egregious as possible. How do you know you can trust somebody that they're not going to go off and do horrible things when they've been committing genocide? Can you see it in their eyes? Is that no, how you this do is, it? Well, no. This how is, the, you... this is the, the whole point. Is you, why should you necessarily believe that that's going to be the case? Plus, maybe you create perverse incentives for atrocity perpetrators to commit even worse crimes under the theory that um, if they're in a negotiated uh, in a negotiation, they're in a locator, the United Nations or or some uh, intervening state would be more likely to give them an amnesty if their crimes are um, even more egregious. And so, um, I don't I don't think it's as simple as just thinking about the the particular context. You have to be think you have to also think about what in, what perverse incentives you're creating for others who might find themselves in that situation, or even for this particular person, there's no necessary guarantee that they're going to hold to their word, especially if they violated um, any sort of other agreements or laws um, in the past. In in transitional justice, mm -hmm. in bringing in moving a society beyond mm -hmm. uh, atrocity or some some genocide or mm -hmm. horrible thing, you mentioned there are seven mm -hmm. ways that that uh, a society can deal with that. Mm -hmm. What a what are what are those seven? What are those sure. seven things? And, and let me clarify that this is for the perpetrators, for victims and survivors, yes. and others. There are, there are a whole slew of other options like compensation, um, and commemoration, and, and memorialization, and so forth. But for for dealing with the actual specific perpetrators, there's inaction, which is um, you know in in the modern day uh, when there's um, sort of global intelligence and, and 24-hour news cycles, um, I think it's increasingly indefensible or unrealistic to claim that you are simply unaware of atrocities being committed. Yeah. And so given that, I equate in the modern day inaction with a de facto implicit unconditional amnesty. Um, the idea being that, that there's actually a decision being made not to do anything. You're aware um, and you're, you're deciding not to do anything. So inaction is actually proactive decision not to do anything. So so that's inaction. I would also uh, suggest that the other six are lustration, which means purging from government, um, exile, uh, indefinite detention, various forms of amnesty, which might include also truth commissions um, if you're providing um, some sort of a deal where in exchange for truthful testimony you provide an amnesty, as occurred in South Africa in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, uh, that started in, 90, in 1994. There's also lethal force, and then lots of variations on prosecution, either th through the United Nations or outside or unilaterally or bilaterally or through military commissions or mm -hmm. uh, civilian courts and so on. Um, so those are generally the seven options that I've identified in the book um, in trying to offer a typology uh, for transitional justice, at least as it affects suspected atrocity perpetrators. Okay. Um, why don't we just kill people? Uh, we, back in the day, there was no, we didn't have fancy tribunals and things. We just, I mean, why didn't we after, uh, why didn't we just kill the Nazis? Was that ever, was that ever an option that, it, that we thought It absolutely of? was considered. Um, Winston Churchill and, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, early on in World War II, 
we're considering, uh, in the case of Churchill, castration and killing. Excuse me? Castration and killing. Churchill suggested castrating all the Nazis. The senior Nazis, yes. And, um, and killing And them. Then, then killing them afterward. Yes. I guess you weird to do it you, you can you do could, it any way you yeah. want castration doesn't uh and consume. and roosevelt fdr also supported lethal force for the senior nazi officials the right. senior war criminals um interestingly and and perhaps even ironically it was stalin uh who argued no we should not merely kill um, we should put them on trial uh, and so he did not stalin did not support the proposal for summary Execution. He wanted to put the Nazis on trial to show the world that the Allies were unafraid to do so. Um, and so eventually, uh, Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt changed um, their positions. Um, and it really was when uh, Harry Truman became president, succeeding uh, FDR. Um, Truman had been a, a judge uh, earlier in his career um, that the uh, consensus within the United States really uh, coalesced around prosecution. Uh, and, um, and, and so uh, finally the, the allies decided to, uh, to prosecute through jointly through the, the multilateral military tribunal of, of Nuremberg um, and unilaterally through uh, different courts in their zones of occupation. Um, but also it should be noted that the Soviet Union, um, despite its objection to what it ter- you know at the time was was being referred to as summary execution did hold uh, show trials, which are really in effect puppet, so, yeah, puppet, Not real sort of things, um, kangaroo courts right. where um, you know it would be a, a very uh, quick and perfunctory um, trial, followed very soon thereafter by a sentencing of of death, um, and so that isn't really what would would be familiar to, you know, to a Western sense of procedural or substantive due process. Um, and is probably just summary execution by, by another name. But um, t- to answer your question, um, the United States government and other, uh, many other governments, including Western liberal uh, governments, have certainly considered using summary execution, targeted killing, uh, in the past to deal with their enemies. Arguably, um, the United States government in particular is using that right now. Um, you know, since the, um, the advent of the global war on terror, uh, and the development of um, unmanned aerial drones or vehicles or, or drones, um, the U.S. government has targeted with lethal force um, many suspected enemies, those who have allegedly committed or planning uh, terrorism as another form of atrocity. Uh, and so um, that, is, that is a targeted killing. That is um, the, the use of lethal force in order to promote some of the objectives of transitional justice. In fact, um, after uh, using uh, targeted killing, both Presidents Bush and Obama in various contexts have called um, this justice being done. Um, but as I would argue, this is more along the lines of vengeance. It's not the classical sense of justice um, through the use of procedural and substantive due process. Um, it's not, it's not, there's no hearing, there's no right to defend yourself, uh, no presentation of, of evidence that can be uh, countered. Um, when, when have we used amnesty uh, in in trying to move a country forward beyond uh, a difficult moment? J- Japan might be one of the most, I think, um, Japan from World War II might be one of the most shocking and appalling examples, I think. So, um, and there, there are various uh, case, uh, groups, groupings of suspected trust perpetrators from Japan 
um, to which the United States government extended uh, amnesty. So um, one is the emperor, Hirohito uh, himself, was um, given an, ex- an unconditional amnesty by the United States government. And the U.S. was really motivated, despite the fact that Emperor Hirohito was suspected very much so of being involved in decision-making um, of the Japanese commission of atrocities. Uh, and but the, So the motivation on the side of the U.S. government was despite being involved um, in atrocities, in, in the commission uh, planning of atrocities, um, the U.S. government prioritized other objectives. So there were, there were mostly uh, three. Um, one was to uh, prevent any sort of a succession struggle um, by the absence of, uh, of the emperor. The other is, you know, the, the emperor was very much considered a godlike character right. in Japanese society. And so it was feared by the U.S. government that if you were to somehow indict or punish or remove um, him, that might trigger some sort of an insurgency. And then the third uh, is, you know, the U.S. government very much saw the coming Cold War uh, and, and believed that um, Japan might be an extremely valuable ally uh, against the Soviet Union. And so the U.S. government uh, very much wanted to keep Emperor Hirohito um, as a friend, as an ally uh, to the U.S. government and not to, um, you know, turn him into an enemy or to turn his supporters into, into enemies. So that's Emperor Hirohito. Another more shocking and appalling uh, situation is with uh, 3,600 Japanese officials, uh, scientists, and physicians who were involved in human experimentation during World War II. Um, Some of of the atrocities that the Japanese committed were so horrific that even the Nazi charge d'affaires, who was located nearby, complained back to... Uh, headquarters back in Germany that yeah. their allies, the Japanese, had gone too far. You know you're doing something really bad yes. if the Nazis are saying right. calm down, do, calm down guys. Pump the brakes. Yes. Right. And so in the case of uh, human experimentation, um, these Japanese um, uh, used extreme temperature, both high and low uh, testing, as well as, bo- as extreme pressure, both high and low testing, as well as the deliberate infection of various deadly diseases um, into humans um, in order to uh, develop weapons, uh, so biological chemical Ooh. weapons. And the U.S. government gave amnesty to these 3,600 people that the U.S. government knew full well had committed these unbelievably shocking um, uh, human experiments on on. Uh, various people from, uh, from World War II, including Allied soldiers and possibly including American POWs. Um, whether American POWs were subjected to the human experimentations that uh, were committed by the exact people that the United States government gave amnesty to um, has not been conclusively determined yet, um, but it, it is possible, and it certainly was the case. That we these, did that why? What was the reason? So the reason was um, to obtain the data. Uh, actually, there are two reasons. One is to obtain the data for the United States government, as well as to keep that data from, again, uh, our um, developing enemies. We couldn't have kept the data or gotten the data by prosecuting presumably, them, it seems like. We presumably just, we could have. Right. Um, but the U.S. government, in, in its wisdom at the time, uh, uh, decided to, um, to, uh, that this would be the best uh, way forward. I should also mention that back to... Um, in Nazi Germany, also the United States government gave amnesties, at least temporarily, to certain people. So Klaus Barbie, for example, who is the, known as the Butcher of Lyon, 
um, for his involvement in the in the deportation and deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, Jewish adults and children, um, was recruited and employed by the United States government for his counterintelligence expertise. We also did with rocket scientists, right? That's right. Warner von Braun. So That's right. A lot of the space uh, early space program. Exactly. Werner von, exactly. Werner von Braun became the father of American rocketry, despite the fact that he had been the person that developed the V2 rocket by Nazi Germany, which Nazi Germany rained and sh- showered upon uh, the UK. Right. Um, and despite the fact that he allegedly used slave labor from concentration camps in order um, to pursue his research. Um, and yes, he was recruited for his expertise. Um, uh, into the American uh, rocketry program. So you mentioned. So you mentioned there's all these seven ways of dealing with, uh, you know, that are involved in transitional mm-hmm. justice. There's there's seven ways uh, to to move a move a society forward um, after atrocities. And one of those, lustration. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a dirty word. Is that what I think it is? Um, I'm not sure what's on your mind, but uh, it, it it might be. Um, yeah. Uh, lustration means um, purging from government um, or blocking you from obtaining an official position. Oh, good. Okay. So, right. so it wasn't what you were thinking. Well, this is a family show. <laughs> so, you know, we got to keep it clean. <laughs> so this has been, um, lustration has been implemented various times in, in history um, where members of a political party, for example, the Nazi party, um, have been removed um, from government. Effectively, uh, it's um, it's an extrajudicial uh um, transitional justice option where um, your guilt is determined by your political association. Okay. Um, and so some argue that this is um, a, a really uh, um, effective and, and wise uh, transitional justice option because the Nazi party, for example, surely um, was based on the cooperation and complicity um, of everybody involved. And so everybody shares in that guilt and they should be removed from government. On the other hand, mm-hmm. Um, it's not always the case, of course, that people join political parties for ideological reasons. They might for merely instrumental ones. So, for example, um, in the case of, uh, of Iraq uh, in, the, in the 2000s, the, the Ba'ath Party, um, some people um, you know, may have joined for, um, you know, to merely keep or, or obtain a job for survival. Um, and so when the U.S. government uh, implemented, um, after its invasion in 2003, the debathification, that's right, Um, that created, um, among other problems, a security vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, Because so many people who had been members of the Ba'ath Party were purged from government, were thrown out. Um, And that included uh, lots of folks who um, were otherwise would have been helpful for the transition um, in terms of um, uh, the the structure, the security, etc., and, um, and so the U.S. government realized that it made a mistake, which led to a new policy called de-debathification mm. or rebathification. Uh, and it was sort of a belated acknowledgement that lustration, if done too broadly, or if not done in a way where you're actually determining that people were, um, were committed and complicit in what the party was doing, um, may actually be counterproductive and also may foment uh, a lot of um, of enmity. Um, a lot of people, you know, can be upset if they feel like they have been wronged um, in being, uh, you know, thrown out of their job. And these might be the exact very people that you might otherwise want to work with you 
um, in the process of post-conflict reconstruction, reconciliation, uh, and management. Transitional justice happens after really bad things happen, right? So or during or during or during uh, horrible things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those things. There, there are all sorts of uh, there's also in the legal and academic world. There's all sorts of terms. There's there's genocide. There's mm-hmm. atrocities. There's mass atrocities. There's mm-hmm. ethnic cleansing. There's crimes against humanity. There are war crimes. There's mm-hmm. even there's terrorism is somehow in here. Well, why do we have so many terms describing this stuff? Why can't we just call it really, 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 really bad things that people do? Yeah. And wouldn't that just be easier? Because then we wouldn't waste any time debating whether or not this was this or mm-hmm. this was genocide or that was ethnic cleansing. Uh, so as a, as a lawyer, um, you know, I very much subscribe to the view that, um, that precision matters, language matters. And, um, and there, are, there are very good reasons why we, why we have separate names for, for these different characterizations of atrocities. Um, but I, I do understand the concern that, it, that there are a lot of them and it gets awfully confusing. Um, you know, it, it wasn't even until uh, fairly recently that we had sort of definitions um, of uh, you know, different kinds of crimes against humanity and, and genocide itself wasn't even defined until the 20th century as well by, by Raphael Lemkin. There, Winston Churchill referred to the Holocaust as a crime without a name. Um, and it wasn't until Raphael Lemkin uh, came onto the scene that, um, that we really had this, uh, this term. Um, but, but, but it's with good reason. And, and the reason, um, so the, the Rwanda Tribunal has identified genocide as the crime of crimes. And, and the reason why this, and I subscribe to this view too, um, why genocide is considered the most egregious of offenses is because of the, the, the actual intent behind it. So unlike other crimes, the intent of genocide is to eradicate, to kill, in whole or in part a particular group because it's that group. So in, in committing your particular crime, um, your particular genocidal crime, it is a crime not only against those specific individuals, but it is also a crime against the entire group because the intention is to, is to eliminate that group, at least in part. And so, um, and so you know, many scholars, many practitioners do view genocide as, um, as, as extremely special uh, and, and therefore deservedly um, deserving of, of special attention. And it's for that reason that uh, the international community, um, for example, created in, in many countries, including the United States, signed on to the Genocide Convention, um, which uh, obligates its signatories, again, including the United States, to prevent and to punish genocide specifically. Um, a, a further acknowledgement that there is something um, particularly odious about this but, is it, but it cre- so it creates this hierarchy of, of evil. Is that problematic to have a hierarchy? I mean, if they're all so bad, what is it? I mean, the, I is mean, a jail sentence going to be a thousand years versus four thousand years? Um, what, what's the difference? I mean, part of part of what what's really at stake here is limited time and resources. I mean, you know, we need to prioritize the all of the many crimes that we're focusing on around the world, um, and you know, not only in terms of our attention and our uh, interventions, but also our budgeting of how we're going to allocate precious resources to things like the creation of war crimes tribunals, um, and deciding which among perhaps many thousands of suspects in it from a particular uh, atrocity context, um, the uh, organizers of the 
um, of the tribunal will investigate and prosecute. Um, so, so sometimes prioritization is, is important and helpful um, where you have limited means and time. Uh, and, and I think that makes, makes sense. Let's talk about war, tri war crimes tribunals. Mm -hmm. these, these tribunals we set up um, uh, to, um, to investigate uh, and punish perpetrators. Mm -hmm. The Rwandan, after the Rwandan genocide, the ICTR, mm -hmm. um, International Criminal Tribunal Rwanda, um, was set up. Mm -hmm. uh, there was 500,000 to a million people who died in the mm -hmm. genocide. There were 200, 2 million people displaced. This tribunal cost somewhere around a billion dollars. Two billion. Two billion dollars. When all was said and done, two billion. But, but okay, but, but they've only convicted like 60 people. Mm -hmm. it, is that a good use of money? Mm-hmm. So many would argue no, uh, that that money could have gone to lots of other things. For example, perhaps building the judicial infrastructure in Rwanda itself. After the Rwandan genocide, there were only about 12 attorneys or so, about a dozen attorneys, um, left. And much of the, um, the infrastructure, besides, of course, the people, was decimated. Um, and so certainly more money could have gone to building the judicial capacity and other governance capacity of Rwanda itself. Also, importantly, of course, a lot of money, much more money could have gone to victims. So, you know, rape was used as deliberate um, tool of the genocide. And so many uh, women were uh, deliberately infected with HIV, then succumbed to AIDS. Much more money could have been uh, put into um, antiretroviral therapy for, uh, for rape victims. Um, as well as just as other lots of other um, uh, you know compensation restitution rehabilitation both mental and physical um, for the the many uh, hundreds of thousands um, perhaps millions of victims. Sure. Um, so so on the one hand yes there there certainly could have been other ways to spend the money. Um, now to to take this sort of um, devil's advocate approach. Um, it should certainly be noted, of course, that the ICTR, the Rwanda Tribunal, um, did accomplish quite a bit. Now, the numbers are, uh, you know, when you put it like, you know, only, a, you, know, you know, a certain number of people in the double digits were, um, were actually convicted. Um, but let's look for a moment at what those convictions were. So, first of all, the Rwanda Tribunal received the first uh, in history um, guilty plea for genocide, establishing a you know very significant uh, precedent. It also convicted the first man, woman, and clergyman for genocide. In addition to that, uh, through its jurisprudence, established that rape, rape alone, could constitute genocide. And finally, another precedent that it, another extremely important precedent it set was the. Uh, conviction at trial of journalists for inciting genocide. So, so mere speech and publishing could incite genocide. And so establishing all these legal precedents was an enormous contribution uh, by the Rwanda Tribunal, which is now being used and has since been used by other uh, tribunals, has put certain people on notice, like journalists, um, that their mere speech could be used uh, against them and could be could lead to an actual conviction of genocidal incitement. Um, and so it remains to be seen, and much more work is being done, both by scholars and practitioners, on whether uh, tribunals actually contribute to deterrence, um, whether specific or, or general deterrence, 
um, and whether tribunals contribute to reconciliation. There's a lot of different yeah. uh, thoughts on this. But in terms of what it contributed to Rwanda and to the development of, of international criminal law jurisprudence, the Rwanda Tribunal did make enormous um, uh, and significant contributions. Um, and so that a, was... Give it a thumbs up. It, it, look, it's very hard to say on balance. I, I, I have the view that um, even despite the, or given the, the enormous contributions, it didn't need to cost this much money. Um, so I served at the, at the Rwanda Tribunal in addition to, to two other tribunals, the Yugoslav Tribunal and the International Criminal Court. And I can tell you um, that there is enormous waste, um, fraud, abuse, um, all of which, if it had been managed better, the Rwanda Tribunal wouldn't have cost this much. So, um, so you know, I, I commend the tribunal for its enormous contributions, mm -hmm. but I join uh, among a, a chorus of other uh, people who criticize the tribunal for taking so much time, expending so much money, and not having prosecuted even more people who were uh, involved and responsible for the genocide. The U.S. has always had a tense relationship with Native Americans. Was that, is that considered genocide? Uh, you know, U.S. policy throughout the uh, late 1700s and mm -hmm. 1800s? It's difficult to say. Um, what I can tell you is that it certainly seems that at least some policies and actions towards Native Americans were genocidal. There were, of course, mass murders. Um, particularly uh, shocking as well was the deliberate infection through smallpox uh, of uh, deadly diseases through issuing of blankets and, and other ways that, um, that Lord Jeffrey Amherst and others had, uh, had, had used and proposed. Um, there was forcible removal of Native Americans from, uh, from certain areas um, and many other crimes that, um, that shock the conscience. Um, I, I think at, a, at, a, you know, at the very least, the crimes that were committed uh, against Native Americans have not been fully addressed. Um, and, uh, and we certainly need um, much more acknowledgement um, and reconciliation for what's, what's been done to Native Americans. When you think about justice, is justice ever anything but victor's justice? I mean, do we ever prosecute the winning side? Does that ever happen? So, um, so victor's justice has played an enormous role, certainly, in, in international law and international uh, conflict. And, you know, going back to, to World War II, maybe the that might be the best example of, of Victor's justice. Um, you know, after, after the war, war, through the Nuremberg Tribunal, through the Tokyo Tribunal, through various unilateral prosecutions in, in zones of occupation, um, it was always the allies right. prosecuting the vanquished, um, the victorious allies prosecuting the vanquished uh, Axis powers. Um, the allies were not prosecuted, despite the fact that the Soviet Union, for example, um, had been allied with Nazi Germany early in the war and then committed many atrocities uh, in World War II, but of course was, um, was not pursued. Also, of course, the United States government has also been accused of committing atrocities, um, most significantly in the, the only use to date, not just once but twice, of atomic weapons. Um, and so regardless of your view on whether accountability should be um, held for those uh, particular instances, um, it wasn't pursued at all. Uh, and so um, Victor's justice has played a, a significant role. However, in more modern days, um, uh, there, the, 
war crimes tribunals, or at least some of them, um, have not been what I would call victor's justice. So it was the United Nations Security Council that created the Rwanda and Yugoslav Tribunal. Had it been victor's justice, it would have been the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which had you know, fought into Rwanda, had stopped the genocide, mm -hmm. and became the successor government. Mm -hmm. It would have been them that created the and, and staffed the tribunal. In fact, the RPF-led Rwandan government voted against, it was the only vote against, um, the creation of the Rwanda Tribunal in the Security Council. Rwanda just happened to, in an amazing coincidence of history, hold a non-permanent rotating seat in 1994, and so could vote. Um, and they voted against, again, the only state to do so. And so the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals aren't what I would argue are victor's justice. Um, now, still, certainly in the case of the Balkans, um, certain members of the Security Council were um, part of the conflict, um, were, were uh, involved in the conflict, including, of course, the United States through NATO, um, and the U.S. holds a permanent seat. But it wasn't, it wasn't just the United States and, and NATO um, you know, creating the U.S. left tribunal. It was the Security Council. Now, in addition, if you come to the International Criminal Court, the world's first permanent war crimes tribunals, tribunal, that also isn't what I would characterize as victor's justice. This was a, a tribunal that was created through a treaty um, by, you know, uh, many, many countries around the world. Um, and it's not, it's not a situation where the victors of a particular conflict sit in judgment of the, of the losers. Um, it is a standing tribunal um, that's supposed to be independent um, and that um, on its, you know, and, and brings charges. Um, now, cases can be referred to it by the Security Council, uh, but, um, uh, but they also can be referred, you know, self-referrals, and the ICC itself can initiate cases. So it's not created after the fact by victors. And so I would not, I would not characterize that either as victors' justice. Thank you so much, Zach. Thank this you. was absolutely wonderful. Thanks, Larry. Thank Appreciate you very much for this opportunity. Yeah. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 